0: welcome to everybody hates me let's talk about stigma a podcast hosted by dr carmen logie She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations, and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show.
1: I'm very excited today to introduce Dr. Charmaine Williams to our listeners. Uh, Dr. Williams is the Vice Dean of Students at the School of Graduate Studies at University of Toronto and also a professor at the factor Faculty of Social Work. Welcome, Charmaine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited, especially because I feel like I've known you for... A long time, but I still wanna learn a lot more about your research. I think I met you in two thousand and six when I started as a PhD student. Okay. Sounds
0: yeah, that sounds good. Sounds right.
1: (laughs) So the first thing I wanna do is talk about your elevator pitch. I'm (laughs) I'm in an elevator with you Uh and we're going up let's say four flights, how would you describe what you do?
0: Okay, so I do research on health and equity, which means that I'm interested in how social justice issues play into issues of health, like who is healthy and who isn't healthy, who's put in the way of harm more than other people, Um, when people experience illness or poor health, um, who is going to get good care and who's going to get not as good care, and how that is connected to. Um, issues in our social environment like various types of oppression and my work mostly talks about oppression on the basis of race but because I have been working as a health professional and looking at health issues for so long I also think a lot about issues like stigma associated with certain health issues
1: like mental illness
0: like HIV.
1: Amazing and I I can't wait um, for you to describe that in more depth. As we move forward, what I want to do now is show up where you are with a time wow. machine. And there's space for two people in this time machine, me and you. And you're going to take me back to the time and place where you decided to study these different kinds of stigma and discrimination. Where will we go?
0: Oh, so when did I start thinking about stigma? So the year is, oh, should I say the year? Do I want to
1: betray the year? <laughs> I mean, you, can, you, can, you
0: don't need to d- just say the exact year. <laughs> I'm going to say it's uh, 90-ish, somewhere in the 90s, uh, when I am a first-year student in a master of social work program, and my first-year placement is on a unit that's called the early psychosis unit. And mm-hmm. the reason I started thinking about stigma then was because this was a unit that received young people who were going through their first experience of serious mental illness. And I saw that, of course, uh, they received care in the unit, but also the kind of advice that they were given about what would happen with their life after this Mm -hmm. quite clearly showed this orientation to an expectation that a person who experiences mental illness is never going to have a job, is never Mm -hmm. going to finish university, is never going to have a family, Mm -hmm. might not even get to stay with their own family. Just all of these sort of assumptions were laid out in terms of often people being very directly given the advice, you should drop out of university. Your life is going to look different from now on. And I was really struck by this partly because uh, as somebody at that time who was already reading a lot of research, I knew that the research literature showed that actually the outcomes were really so much more variable and especially with somebody who was only experiencing their first episodes you really did not know what the mm-hmm. what the future held and so if what we did was lay down this prophecy and then and then put together psychosocial supports that fulfill that prophecy for people mm-hmm. then i i i really saw the destructiveness of of um of how stigma was operating within the mental health care system. And I certainly knew, had I had known about, I mean, it's impossible, I think, to grow up in in this culture and not be aware of stigma against mental illness. All you have to do is watch TV mm-hmm. or, you know, read a newspaper. <laughs> it's all there for you. Um, and that was even before, I'd say at that time, we weren't even as sensitive to how that intersects with other types of um, stigma. So, you know, what happens if you're a person of color with a mental illness? What happens mm-hmm. if you're a poor person with mental illness? So we, you know, so it's certainly out in the culture that was known. I think it was eye-opening for me to also see how it played out within the mental health care system sometimes quite directly through just attitudes and ways that people interacted with patients just showed that they did not consider these people to be fully equal to them that that label that moment of diagnosis shifted the humanity of that person so I saw that but I also saw that the system was set up in a way that also reinforced those stigmas so for me the stigma is not just about what happens in an encounter between two people or between you know groups of people Mm -hmm. It's also about how a system makes determinations about which health issues or which issues generally are considered worthy of resourcing. Mm-hmm. So if I look at what long-term care looks like for somebody with schizophrenia, mm-hmm. I see a system that thinks that this is a group of people that doesn't deserve to be maintained at a level of dignity, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. If I look at you know uh, financial supports for somebody on long-term disability, this is a system communicating it doesn't matter to us if you're able to pay rent and live in a re- in a safe place. It doesn't matter to us if you mm-hmm. are able to afford quality food. So, you know, it's also became about, you know, a view that I had on how stigma becomes institutionalized.
1: And then the, it's so interesting. So keep
0: going. Well, the other thing I would say is that I think that I also learned about internalized stigma there, too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, these young people who were having their first experience of mental illness were looking to us to explain what this meant for their lives, but also had a script in their head that they had internalized about what that meant. So on the one hand, the system and systems are set up in a way that constrains the possibilities for somebody Mm -hmm. with a mental illness, but also there's something much more insidious that happens in terms of internalizing stigma that also then erodes your sense of entitlement to things. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: It erodes your sense of entitlement to a future that you get to choose or your sense of entitlement to being treated respectfully and with dignity. So the, I learned about internalized stigma there because I saw when it started when that moment when all of those ideas that you had in your head about what mental illness means suddenly become personal. So now, now I have to integrate this into my personal biography.
1: Yeah. And, be,
0: and because we're, we're so saturated with stigmatizing ideas and images around mental illness, it's unsurprising that, that at, in those moments when you try to weave this into your personal biography, that isn't woven in as a story of hope. It's woven in as a story of marginalization.
1: Well, that's so powerful. And I'm really glad that you mentioned the structural nature. Um, When I was in my undergrad, and this is a long time ago, like 1994, I ended up working as a support worker at a group home for men diagnosed with schizophrenia. And I never really, because it was just me and it was probably, I can't remember how many men, maybe about 15 men playing euchre and, you know, helping heat up food. And I didn't really, it, I didn't really experience stigma in that space. But when I would go out and tell people, oh, I have this amazing job that I love, I would hear stigmatizing perspectives sure, about yeah. this group that I was working with. But then when I worked in a psychiatric unit as part of my grad grad school, that's, I think, when I first really saw what you said about the institutionalization of how we treat people um, maybe with less hope, less dignity, less worth, less possibilities in their future. I really saw that um, play out. Well, that's really, I'm really glad that you're this because I don't think there's, there's people studying mental health stigma, but I feel like, not maybe as much as other types of, of health stigma. Maybe that's just because I'm so in the HIV world, I see more focus mm-hmm. on that.
0: I think, I mean, it, it does depend on where you're spending your time. Cause I do think that we have our deepest knowledge about mental health, mental illness stigma, because people have been thinking and writing about it for so long mm-hmm. and that cross fields. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, Uh, If I think about, because I spend a bit of time in in the HIV context as well, I think there's quite a bit of work there. And then other people who are applying it to sort of using the, you know, the origins, the theoretical origins to apply it to issues of race and culture and immigration, Mm -hmm. marital status, like fat, Mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of things, Mm -hmm. just like all kinds of things. Because I think that what's useful about the concept is it makes tangible this idea that we have oppressive ideologies that have an impact on people. Mm. Because often people think of oppression as like this sort of, thing in the air so people have some like negative ideas but then how does that actually how, how does that actually have an impact well it's stigma and I think the thing about stigma is then you can it's you can talk about how those ideas become stigmatizing ideas that then become stigmatizing ways of interacting with other people and applying stigma to people but also then also becomes a way that we organize resources and how we think about who are full citizens in our environment and who are not full citizens.
1: So when somebody, you know, the first question I was going to ask, I think you're answering it right now, which is who cares? Like, why does this matter? And you're, you started just now saying that it's not just these floating ideas, they actually matter for who is seen as and treated as human with potential. Um, how, so is there anything, you know, when you're thinking about the who cares or Why is this super important to look at that you want the listeners to think about?
0: Well, I think, I mean, it's it's an issue of social justice for me, right? So there's a, a component of your listenership that's going to understand that this is a social justice issue. And if we want to think of ourselves as people that believe in social justice and living in a country and a community that cares about social justice, then we have to care about people who are victims of social injustice, right? And mm-hmm. we have to recognize stigma as not just a few people telling a few, you know, off color jokes or, you know, making choices that I'm not sure. I, you know, want to hang out with this person, this has psychological consequences, social consequences, material consequences, mm-hmm. and long-term consequences, right? The consequences run quite deep. I guess if you're not a person that cares about social justice, now let me think about how I would pitch <laughs> that argument. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. I mean I I think that the that partly some of us, In some ways, we should be self-interested about stigma because it floats so much. So there, there are certain places where like stigmas, like we, we've already talked about mental illness. Stigma has been something we've thought about and been aware of for quite some time with mental illness. But there is no shortage of things that become, can become stigmatized and then becomes your problem to deal with, right? Mm-hmm. So, you it, know, it could hit you at some point. It could stigma. at some point. It could. So, you know, in some ways, I think we all it's it's partly that we all have to be vigilant for it, recognize it when we see it coming. And I, I think that people don't in, mm-hmm. in its, unless in, it's in its most obvious forms or um, or it's it's attached to something that they are personally familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, So, you know, I I would like to think that generally it's good for us to be vigilant and and be able to call that out right now. The reason that you're making this decision, the reason that you're allotting resources this way is because this is a stigmatized group and we Mm -hmm. have to unpack that stigma. And then, yeah, I think there should be some like certainly in social work, which is my home discipline. I I want to imagine a future where social workers are really well equipped to have conversations about stigma, um, both from the perspective of being able to challenge it when it Mm -hmm. comes up in the conversations they're having with colleagues or with, um, with other services or other institutions, but also to be able to surface it and talk about it with their clients Mm -hmm. and really, you know, sort of get into the fact that like now, I mean, I'm using this idea of a personal biography. Now that this has become part of your personal story, story. This baggage that's attached to it because of the stigma associated with it is also part of that story. Um, And then the other thing about a stigmatized identity is that it's not something that you necessarily want to bring into the social space all the time because of consequences. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole thread of thinking around if what you have is a stigmatized identity, whether that's about illness or ethnicity or you know even gender you know things like that if you have a stigmatized identity i mean how are you able to exercise some agency around whether or not you disclose that identity mm. to people
1: you're so fantastic because the second part of the questions <laughs> i was going to ask you is so what does stigma look like in practice and, and what you're suggesting now is are our decisions when we have such a decision around disclosure, because some stigmatizing things, maybe such as a mental health challenge could be something that we might have some agency over disclosure versus say race, uh, Mm -hmm. sometimes gender identities, Mm -hmm. things like that. So one way that it looks like our ability or not ability to disclose these elements of our identities Are there other things that you've noticed that is important to know what stigma, how it manifests and what it looks like?
0: Well, I think the other thing is um, even staying with disclosure, that it's that one way you can also exercise some agency is around strategically disclosing. Mm -hmm. So are there situations in which it is actually important for you to for somebody to have this information or that it's useful for you to bring this information forward? Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
0: So, I'll I'll give an example that's maybe sort of (laughs) not the best example, but if if you think about um, celebrities who will sometimes disclose um, I've had experience with mental illness, Mm -hmm. I've had experience with addiction, um, I'm HIV positive, any of these things. Right. So there are many reasons that's a, that's a risky move if it's a Mm -hmm. stigmatized identity. Right. And um, I think that, part of thinking about, you know, when you disclose or don't disclose is assessing your risks in doing so. Mm -hmm. And and part of what mediates those risks is other identities that you may have access to that could insulate you from the consequences of that disclosure. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So part of what makes it possible for a a celebrity to disclose their uh, history of addiction or mental illness is that this is presumably a person who has enough privileged identities, enough resources and, and, uh, and power, just, you know, power uh, that, Mm -hmm. uh, that this person can withstand what might be potentially negative consequences from that, or is at least insulated from them. Right. In, in the way that say, uh, you know, somebody who is, I'll talk about students in the university because I deal with that here. Students in the university do not feel isolated from the consequences of disclosing, a diagnosis or history of mental illness, mm. they feel quite vulnerable in this space. Even faculty members feel that way, but a faculty member who is a more permanent member of the, of the community and harder to, um, harder to purge <laughs> than, um, <laughs> than students uh, has that much more privilege that makes it more possible for that person. But I do not pretend that it is still not a risk for that faculty member in 2020 to disclose that, right? So then when, when would you strategically disclose that? Well, you strategically would disclose, make a disclosure like that, weighing your risks in terms of your ability to withstand the risks and also weighing the benefits of making that disclosure. And those benefits might be personal in terms of there's, one of the examples I always use is unless you disclose your diagnosis, you cannot get access to the, to the supports that are available for people mm-hmm. with your diagnosis. So that is a strategic
1: disclosure.
0: And, and what are some
1: of the risks you think that are being balanced against the benefits?
0: Well, some of them are social in terms of how you think people will view you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they can also become material in terms of things like uh, if I just dis- if I have a if I go into a job interview and I disclose that I have a history of mental illness, is the risk that I'm taking that somebody will think that that means I'm not a good candidate for this mm-hmm. position? Is the risk mm-hmm. that I'm taking that people will consider me a risky person to take on? Oh, now we'll have to worry about benefits and leaves and all these sort of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so. So those are, so that, that then becomes a type of material risk. Yeah. If we're talking about particular stigmatized identities, there could be actually physical risk in terms of the harms that are visited on certain bodies in our culture mm-hmm. because they are considered bodies that have to deal with those kinds of harms and risks So and violences. So um, those are the kinds of risks. And, and I think it's important to, to always be aware that the risks are multidimensional. Mm-hmm. because this is not just about I might not feel I shouldn't I don't even want to diminish that the, the sort of social risks um, that are associated with stigma, whether that's mental illness or HIV or ethnicity or gender or whatever it is, the social risks can be sort of, you know, minimized as well. So there's certain people who aren't going to want to spend time with you right? Mm-hmm. Um, we had those social distancing scales. I don't know if they get used much anymore, but stigma was often sort of evaluated based on answering questions about whether you wanted this person as your neighbor, as yeah. your friend, you know, all that sort mm-hmm. of thing, right? So, you know, so then stigma is sort of reduced to it means that certain people will not want you as their neighbor or their friend or a member of their family or something like that. But the risks are, are deeper than that. Uh, on on one end, I would point to the fact that the risks can include actual physical risks actual risks to f- risk of violence because certain stigmatized identities certain groups in our communities are at risk of violence from mm-hmm. people if they know that they if if people are aware of them as somebody with a stigmatized identity, because part of what goes along with that stigma is a knowledge that these are people who are not supported and protected by the system the way others are. Mm-hmm. So there's the actual physical risk, but then at the other end, like I said, the institutional risk that you are put into a category of people that are not seen as meriting the same attention, the same rest, sorry, respect, the same resourcing, the same level of service, the same quality of service, Mm-hmm. you know that's powerful
1: Charmaine <laughs> <laughs> that's really I have a few wealth card questions but the oh, last major wait, question those
0: were not the wild card questions no yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the wild card ones are fun so people can get to know who you are okay. oh no so this is <laughs> so this is the last one and I really because I feel the gravity of what you're saying and the weight of it an urgency for us to address all of these risks that stigma holds for, for people. What can we do about this? If, if someone came, came to you and just said, how can I be part of the solution? What would you recommend about stigma? For example, with mental health Yeah, or in well, race I, and the way it intersects with all the different identities or, you know,
0: or other things. I, I mean, I, I, I find myself sort of thinking through what stigmas I think will be left over from this public health emergency right now.
1: Because
0: mm-hmm. uh, we've seen already that there was a stigma initially associated with Asian identity that sort of is just reactivating stigmas that were there that we just didn't talk about that much, I believe. Um, but what else will be I, – I wonder about what will be left in the aftermath um, of this. So, what would I say to somebody about being part of the solution? So, I think that actually uh, I, I see different audiences for this. So, there's like, there's, I feel like there's a certain set of interventions, communications that need to happen around the idea of internalized stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because if I think about those young people that I met back in the early psychosis unit. I, I wish that I had had the language then to talk about the ideas that were in their head, the ideas that they were hearing from these people around them, the sort of at best benign um, bigotry of the low expectations being placed on them mm-hmm. in their future. I wish I'd had the language to talk to them about it then because I feel like moving through this space as a person entitled to respect dignity and full citizenship is an important thing that people need to do. And so there's your own work you have to do about how does this stigmatized identity become part of my identity now? And how is a person moving through a world in which I know I am stigmatized? Do I at least hold the ground that I will not stigmatize myself?
1: Yeah, like disentangling those negative um, social values and beliefs from your own Mm self-worth.
0: Mm-hmm. And so developing tough. the capacity to sort of check yourself, um, is, am I accepting this because I am internalizing or I am mirroring back this person's belief about what I deserve because of this identity that I have? So I, 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 I think that, that there's an audience for something that, that I want to empower around refusing to self-stigmatize, mm-hmm. right? And then there is a broader audience that I would want to understand more deeply how stigma operates, how I'm, I may be inadvertently stigmatizing mm-hmm. somebody. Because I have been immersed in these same discourses my whole life, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there's a deliberate unlearning process here. I mean, how as I, as a person in the community, aware of stigma in my community, aware of how it operates, now educated about what it looks like, how am I ready to check that in myself and challenge that in other people? Mm. and how am I even maybe able to take that on by saying that as part of this community and a community that I believe is a just place or wants to be a just place, we have to deal with this way that we are operating or we are resourcing or whatever because the way we are doing it now reflects stigma at the institutional level. So I would want a community that's able to do that and activists, and advocates, and academics, and professionals that can do that, and I would want all of us to appreciate that we potentially spend time in both roles, as a person who is working through internalized stigma, or facing that challenge, and as somebody who has to be an ally and vigilant for the way that stigma is affecting the lives of people around me.
1: That's great, and I I do appreciate that you are talking to multiple audiences, because many people listening are going to most people have, have or will experience stigma at some point, and so to be aware of the impact on your own self-love and self-acceptance, as well as think about who's valued in your community, the language we use in our institutions. Thank you so much, you're so brilliant. I have a few. This is true, absolutely. True. <laughs> I have a few wildcard questions, uh, let me so hold that on to something. The, the listeners will be able to get to know the real Dr. Charmaine Millions. Oh,
0: what, what reassures me is knowing that it can be edited out later. <laughs> <laughs>
1: absolutely. What is okay? First question. What is something surprising about you that people might not know? A hidden talent. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> I actually know one. I'm going to mention it if you do it <laughs> well, not? Like it's hidden. But.
0: Yeah. People are surprised when I tell them I've been watching The Young and the Restless since I was five years old.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. that was almost going to be my other question like, in lieu of the first question. So this is great. Like something that you like watching. So well, I don't there, know
0: if I'd say that. I don't know if I'd say that. At, at this point it's kind of a loyalty. <laughs> so, I just because I used I started watching it when I come I'd come home from kindergarten, my mother would be watching it, so I'd sit down in the family room with her and watch it. And it's like this it's there it's like a it's like these relatives I visit every once in a while. So, I can't say I sit and watch it every single day. Because that would make me crazy. But, it's, but it is funny for me to think that I have been watching it since I was five years old, which at this point is a very long time ago.
1: <laughs> is there any life lessons
0: that you've gleaned from the show? Oh, yes. You know what Young and the Restless teaches you? Mm-hmm. No secret will ever stay a secret.
1: Ah, that's a good lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I have never watched that show. and You're making me... Intrigued. I, if you keep your attention. I know you're not that old. But keep your attention for a few years.
0: <laughs> I think it's more, you know, it's like, the, it's the perfect thing. Uh, you know, to give you an example, when I was on maternity leave, every day, like it comes on at 4.30 in the afternoon. Every day I would say, it, when the Young of the Restless came on, I would say, oh my God, I made it through another day. Because I was like... <laughs> I was in bad shape (laughs) and every day just to know that I had made it through another day when that music came on. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of like, it's a touchstone for me. I don't know that I could actually recommend it to anyone. You
1: know, you, you can always share that. The wisdom that you've gleaned, which That's you should true. all know—all <laughs> those, those like murder mysteries, okay. like they always find out the secret. Um, okay, the second wild card question I have: If you could go anywhere in the world at any point in time and have dinner with anybody, mm-hmm. who would you meet for dinner, and where would you go?
0: So this is a wonderful question, of course, because we, in the, at this moment we're just fantasizing about travel, right? Yes, you could
1: literally be at any point in history as well.
0: So. <laughs> oh, any point in history even. Also, who's the person I most want to meet? So the location is Barcelona because I took a trip to Barcelona years ago and just what a wonderful city for walking.
1: I want to go so bad.
0: It's a beautiful city full of beautiful, friendly people. I mean, listen, it has its own whatever, but, like, but just i guess i i don't know if this is is just barcelona but you know things are different in europe right in the sense that people actually think you might greet other people on the street and also <laughs> that when you go for coffee you don't grab it in a styrofoam cup and go running to the next meeting drinking it you actually would sit down with a cup mm. and a saucer and yeah. either talk to the people around you or read a book or 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 just look around i mean wow so i had a wonderful visit to barcelona that i
1: have never gone if you know of any reason to be going let me know in the future (laughs) yeah yeah there was a there was a
0: conference this year i I bet you won't be surprised to hear it got canceled (laughs) but i can recommend the conference um so who would i take there because now that you told me it can be anybody in time who would i oh yeah listen i know (laughs) This is a deep dive. I want to have coffee with Queen Esther from the book Esther in the Old Testament. Wow. So part of what you're learning there is uh, that I grew up in the kind of world where I know about Queen Esther in the Old Testament. I
1: don't know (laughs) about Queen Esther,
0: but taking her to Barcelona for coffee was... (laughs) Uh, She's, I mean, she she lit the fire for me on feminism (laughs) because as a young child, I... She really made a strong impression on me as this strong, intelligent woman who worked within the confines of the role that she had to make this huge difference for her
1: people. Oh, that's amazing. Queen Esther. Okay. You're really inspiring me to learn about her and to also uh, rekindle my future plans at some point to visit Barcelona. My final question for you, what is the best advice you have ever received? Or it does not be the best. what is a great and fantastic piece of advice that you 've received
0: i don 't know I suppose i 've been lucky enough to get lots of good advice along the way, and i 'm trying to think if anything stands out but in, in, uh, actually, what came to mind first is a piece of advice that I kind of give myself as part of my self talk oh, so amazing. it might have been so it might be something that somebody said to me a long time ago that really stuck when something uh, hits me that seems really alarming, upsetting. World changing or whatever, the first question I ask myself is Is this going to change anything that you have to do tomorrow morning? Because if it doesn't change anything you're going to have to do tomorrow morning, you best put it aside and just deal with what you have to do tomorrow morning.
1: I love and it, that.
0: It, yeah, it partly keeps me sort of in this like mindful space. You don't have to think beyond tomorrow morning. And then just also reminds me that things could look different tomorrow morning.
1: That is such a great piece of advice because it's so easy. I mean, I'm also reading for myself. It's very easy to get caught up in detours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you still have to end up at the same destination the next day, maybe don't go off on that detour. That's yeah, I mean,
0: it might save you a little bit of travel time. And then the other thing is if it actually is going to change what you have to do tomorrow morning, then yeah, let's let's we better <laughs> let's let's get on it then. Because this is this is something you actually have to deal with right now. I may write that on a sticky note and put (laughs) it
1: on my bulletin board. (laughs) I'll take a photo and send it to you. That's amazing. Um, I just want to say thank you so much. I know you are such a busy person and I'm very grateful that you took the time to share your wisdom and perspective. And I just want the listeners to know there will be... Links to Dr. Charmaine Williams' webpage where you can read more about her work. And um, thank you again so
0: much for joining us. My pleasure. As you promised, this was fun. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world and